It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra. I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Now, we got a young man here today who seemed like he'd been mission, missing in action for quite some time. But we've, <laughs> we've located we located him, and he's ready to roll to tell his story, to tell his history, to share the history from which he came and the history of Baton Rouge. Welcome, Mr. James Jim Wayne to Kautai. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. All right, now we got a whole lot to talk about. <laughs> now you, he got so much history, so much to share, and also he's a he's, he's a local. We got a, he's an attorney who created and started the Capital Area Capital. County Le- area legal, legal services. Legal services. Years ago, first yep. when, first when that was to help. Yep. The, and before that, it was by you to the Fush legal services. Oh, all right then. All that right. was before Capital Area. Who started uh, by you the Fush legal services? I did. Because you was helping the farmers. Helping the farmers and helping the poor people. See, at that time, legal service, free le- civil legal service, was only for Baton Rouge. A little program in Shreveport and one in Monroe. That was it. Then when uh, I got involved and I promised the Martin Luther King uh, Foundation and uh, the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, if they give me a fellowship, I would try to get legal services, free legal service throughout the state, which I did. How you get in, 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 in relationship with Martin Luther King Foundation to even... Well, when, when I came from Vietnam, I wanted to go to law school and I wanted to work in foreign services. And I just wanted to get a PhD, uh, a law degree, and pursue my dreams. So when I came from Vietnam, they had a program sponsored by the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, but they needed funding, so the Gillette Foundation uh, started putting up the money and uh, General Casey, who was my hero and idol, uh, family helped me. And so he called me and said, there's a program called the Woodrow Wilson Foundation in, in, name, in honor of Dr. King. And so it came out in the Army Times that it, they're only taking Vietnam veterans okay. and uh, who had a, uh, a degree, uh, undergrad degree, and who wanted to get a terminal degree uh, could qualify. There was over 5,000 of us that, uh, that applied for the job, for the position. 5,000? 5,000 nationwide. And uh, surprisingly, quite a few of us from Louisiana qualified. I was one of them. And uh, went to Memphis, Tennessee at the Lorraine uh, Hotel where Dr. King was assassinated. They interviewed, they narrowed it down to about 500. And they were going to take 50 out of that 500. I tell you who else was in that class who got a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship in the uh, in name of Dr. King was uh, James Schaefer, an engineering student from Southern. We were classmates. He was from Ruston. I was from Marion, Louisiana. Not Marigouin, Marion, M-A-R-I-O-N. And uh, another was William Samuel. He's, he's uh, passed on. Uh, William was a, a sergeant in the Army a personnel sergeant, and uh, William's from Plaquemine. He's, he's gone on to be with the Lord. And uh, I think it was one other uh, person from Louisiana who applied, uh, but they didn't make it. But three of us got those out of, out of the 
50, there was awarded three was right here in Louisiana. It was only 50 state uh, nationwide. 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 And y'all, three out of you. Out of you uh, yeah, James Schaefer, William Samuels, and, and, and me. And y'all was all middle, uh, uh, Vietnam all veterans. Vietnam veterans. And uh, uh, well, William Samuels took the G, uh, GE, but he ended up being in personnel. Now, William Samuels was interested. He was the fastest typist I ever seen in my life. <laughs> typist? He typed so well and could think as he typed, he was allowed to take his bar exam for, for, to become a lawyer, bring his typewriter in the, class, in the, in the testing room. Because he could type fast. He, he could write. type that fast. And thinking on, on, at the same time. At the same time. I could never seen anybody else do it. And we got to be great friends. We were classmates in law school at Southern. And James Schaefer went on to get his Ph.D. degree from the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. So y'all had a lot going on. Yeah, we, we didn't know it. I didn't know it at the time that uh, I had some good teachers at Southern. I had uh, Dr. Higgins, who was head of the uh, political science department. I had Jewel Prestige, uh, political science, Adolph Reed. Uh, in geography, I had Dumbard. And French, because she tried her best to teach me some French. <laughs> uh, Madam Petite, uh, uh, Mr. Petite, Mr. Little's wife, called her Madam Petite. But I was born in uh, North Louisiana, a little place called Marion, M-A-R-I-O-N. And uh, where's that next to? That's in Union Parish. It's about 35 well, miles north of uh, Monroe, 13 miles from Farmerville, okay. and uh, north of Monroe. I was right. I, I was born and raised right on the Arkansas line, eight miles south of uh, the Arkansas-Louisiana line. El Dorado, Arkansas, was just as common going to the big city as Monroe was. Uh, we was about 35 miles between. Yeah, my dad had worked most of his life in Arkansas. My dad had worked for many, many years in a little place called Huttick, H-U-T-T-I-G. Arkansas, near Strong's, Arkansas. My mama had a large family, and my daddy had a large extended family. My, my grandpa, I, I, I said at his funeral, Papa was a Rolling Stone. He was a Rolling Stone. He was married five times and two times to the same woman. Uh, William Thomas Wayne, they call him Buck Wayne. Grandpa was, grandpa, yeah, well, Buck, everybody knew Buck. And, uh, he, had, he, he was a good man, a farmer. Uh, my grandfather was a sharecropper. The unique thing about it, back in the 40s and the 50s, guess who he worked for? His daughter and her husband. His daughter? His daughter and her husband. Now, uncle Will, my uncle, my, my daddy's brother-in-law, had, I guess, about two or 3,000 acres of land Ooh. back in the 40s now. And he had trucks, log trucks, puffwood truck, and my grandfather ran the farm, the ranch, and all of that. We had cattle everywhere. One of my first jobs, riding a horse, a mule, the horse, and me and my cousins, my first cousin, we ride ride the land, the, the, the fence line, to see if anybody stole any cattle, and see if any cows broke out or something like that. And we rode that line, and if it was a, you know, cut the wires or something, we went in, we, we knew how to mend the fence. 
And uh, but, but you couldn't go find the cattle though. That was, no, uh, we that, we that knew was, we knew who was stealing them. Oh, yeah, Grandpa who knew who was stealing them. And uh, Uncle Will would say, "Well, I guess they needed it more than we needed it." But we never hurt hurt for meat, farm peas. He would. How many heads of cattle did, did y'all have? Oh, hundreds. And uh, whenever meat cutting time in, in January, February, everybody in the community from the church, our church and other churches came to the farm and Grandpa them would cut, kill hogs, kill beef. And we all had little jobs. Uh, I'll never will forget we had the job when I was a little boy, sit on a hog and scrape the hair off after they scald the hog in the pit and uh, be hot, hot, on a 55-gallon drum, then take him out. And we would scrape the hair off the hog. Yeah, I remember the day when they, would, uh, when they would put a knife and cut him. I had to do all of that. They made me do it when I turned 50. Uh, my cousins and everybody back at home, they said, well, James a city boy now. He's been to college and everything. He don't know. We got, we got to teach him how to be tough. He probably faint. So I came home. I think I was living in New, New Jersey somewhere. Came home and they set it up for me. So I had to, I had to hit the hog in the, with, head. In the head with the sledgehammer. Then uh, put the put the, the the wire around his hoof, and then draw him up on a single what we call a single tree, right. and uh, draw him up on on a post, and then had to go and split him down the middle, reach in there with your gloves and pull all of his innards as they call it, and pull it down and uh, let him bleed in the tub, and uh, they made those blood sausages and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, that blood So when, they, when I finished, I said, all right, what's my next job? <laughs> well, you're surprised about they, it. They thought I was going to faint, <laughs> that, that I could do it, but I'd seen it enough. I knew, I knew, you know, knew you what know, was going on. Like I know how, how, what, what the score was. So that's why I, I came up, and my mother was a school teacher. How many brothers and sisters you had? I have one sister. One natural hey, brother, hey, what's, what's your sister name? Shirley Wayne, and I have a brother named Ralph Wayne. He lives in New Orleans. Oh, okay. And uh, I tell people that my brother's got a famous son that a lot of people know who follow football, uh, Reggie Wayne, who played for 14 years with the Indianapolis Colts. Okay. And uh, he's coaching now for the Colts, the wide receivers, and he helps with the offense. Uh, that's my brother. Now, I had another girl in the family, my first cousin, Elizabeth Talton. My mother was a Talton. That was Aunt Charlotte's only daughter. Aunt Charlotte died in 1947, Christmas Day. And uh, I remember my mama, uh, about a year later, my mama came and got Elizabeth. We call her Tiny, so I read refer to her as tiny a lot. So I had her like a big sister. She was a year older than me and a year and a half older than I. So actually four of us in the so house. So she grew up with She grew you. up with me now, too. Now what was your mom and dad name? Luke Wayne was my dad and Or Talton Wayne, my mom. Do you, remember, do you know your mom and dad, mom's name? Yeah, my, 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 my daddy, Luke Allen Wayne, I got the Allen in my middle name. Okay. And uh, my mama is Orrie Lee Talton Wayne. Now, the Talton family was just as big as the Wayne family. My mama's family, 
She was from up around the same She area. was about 16 miles away from Marion, south of Marion, closer to Monroe. Now, what was unique about the Towtons, big family. I never knew my great-grandmother. I knew my grandparents. But my great-grandmother was Amanda Towton. In 1919, she purchased 150 acres of land. 1919, your grandmother? My great-amanda Talton. Your great-grandmother-grandmother? Great-grandmother. She bought 150 acres of land from Grover Cleveland. He was president of the United States of America. He was the, the owner, the United States government was the owner of a lot of land that was abandoned by the slave owners. Oh, all right. Yeah. So it reverted to the United States of America. And in 1919, they were selling land. And the way they got to that land that she purchased for $100. $100. She, they were slaves. Grandma Amanda, great-grandma Amanda and her husband Lee were slaves. And the, the slave owner was moving his farm from Alabama to a, headed to a place called Minden, where Minden, Louisiana, up in North Louisiana. And the wagon train, we, we, talk, we ain't talking about two or three wagons, but it was a whole wagon train, a whole farm. Uh, oh, okay. And they bogged down up in Union Parish. And they couldn't move, they got stuck. They, they were buried, buried down in the mud to the axle. So they had to stay there until the springtime came and they could dig themselves out and go on to Mendham where he had bought land up there. Well, during that time when they were sitting there, they, you know, they had animals with them and they lived on the side of the road. Emancipation Proclamation was passed. And so the slave was freed while they were stuck in the mud. So he told his slave, you're free to go. I don't own you anymore. You can come on and go on to Mendon with us, or you can, you're free to go wherever you want to go from here. So my grandmother, Lee, uh, uh, Amanda, my great-grandmother, and her husband, Lee, decided to go ahead and squat on the land where he left them. And that's the land we own today. Your family it's still own that property? Still own that property. 150 acres? 150 acres. Well, 160 acres originally, but when they widened the highway to Farmerville, they took land on both sides of the highway, so it's down, they lost about 10 acres. So that, that, that's, that was my mother's story. And uh, they had, in 1921, they discovered gas on the land. So my great-grandmother was very shrewd. Instead of taking a, a one-six royalty was the going rate, she said she would take a one-eight. She was very smart. Take a one-eight instead of the standard one-six, as long as any of her descendants needed gas and lived on that place, they had free gas. And that's where my mom and dad, uh, my grandparents came up. They had free, free, electric, free gas. My mother had gas lights on the side of the wall in the house. You know, my mother didn't know she was poor. She, they, they had gas around the pots outside, the boiler clothes, gas, everything. They, they lighted up everything. Everything was gas. And all the gas is gone now. It's just a little bit left 
for one or two people who still live on the place, and that's not much. But uh, back in the day, uh, the Taltons had, had, had a lot when they had free gas. Now, what brought you to down south? Well, I took a, a test. They came around to my high school on the day we had our class picnic. So we were loaded up and, and pulling out of the schoolyard, and teacher ran out and stopped us. It was about two truckload of us with all of the pots and utensils that taken over to Bernice. Well, Willis Reed. Willis Reed and I were good friends. We was in the same Boy Scout troop. Willis Reed, the basketball, basketball player. We were good friends. So they stopped and said, well, Southern University is here to give a test for a scholarship. They give out a scholarship to, if you make a high enough score to each high school in the state. So they pulled six of us out to go and take the test. Well, you was mad, huh? Oh, were well, we were mad. <laughs> Missing your picnic. Yeah, class picnic, my little girlfriend gonna get away from me. <laughs> and so... so now, well, what year was this? 1959. Okay. So we took the test, we ran through it, and uh, that summer uh, I got a letter from Southern University said I had received an academic scholarship to Southern. So I called, I was graduated fourth in my class. So I called my homeboy, who's still living, my, my best friend. And I What's said, his name? Ralph Holly. He, he lives in Marion now. I said, Ralph, I got a scholarship. He said, you know, I got a letter too from Southern. So I called my cousin, Claudia Watson, and they're married now. They, they, they were Ralph. high school, Ralph and Claudia. Oh, okay. Claudia's my cousin. And uh, called her, she said, well, James, I got one letter too. So I got a scholarship. So I called Lily Waters. She was graduated third in the class. Ralph was, or Claudia was first. Ralph was second. Lily was third. I was fourth. So we called. Everybody said, called Lily. She said, well, I didn't want to call y'all to tell you, but I got a letter too. But they only give one per school. I said, oh, Southern, I messed up now. <laughs> so we came on down to Southern University, the four of us. Ralph came down early, and we came down when it was time for freshmen to register. So we had freshmen in convocation, and Dr. Clark received all the freshman classes and gave a little speech now, now to which Clark was it? Felton Clark. Okay. Felton G. He got up and he said, I want uh, Claudia Watson, Ralph Holler, James Wayne, and Little Waters to come up to the stage. Oh, uh, no, take the scholarship back. Huh? One of us going to lose. They're not, they don't give but one per school. St. Aug, Southern Lab, they make it no difference. One per school. Okay. So we sat on up to the stage, and he said, now, y'all from Marion? He said, yes, sir. Where is Marion? I, I cracked a joke. I said, well, Dr. Clark, I said, y'all pay electric bill down here, right, for electricity? He said, yeah. I said, well, we play sunlight. We're so far in the country, we have to pay sunlight bill. <laughs> so the place just cracked up. And uh, Ralph and I had done a minstrel show, so that was one of the lines in there, we pay sunlight bill. Oh, okay. So he said, the reason I brought these four students, we give this scholarship to each school, from St. Aug to Southern Lab, Grammar Lab. And reason I call these four up, we gave four to this school, Marion High School, Marion Industrial High School. The reason why, these four students, each one set the record for the high score ever we ever, ever made on our test. 
So we, the committee decided to give all four a scholarship to Southern. Oh man, we was in high cotton then. So, <laughs> we was in high cotton. So a small school in Mary, nobody- 20, 22 the, in the graduating the, class. The president of Southern didn't even know where it was at. Didn't know where it was. No, no, what was, what was the name of the high school? Marion Industrial High School. Marion Industrial High School. When we tell them we're from Marion Industrial, they thought it was a- A, 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 a community? Like a, no, no, they thought it was a school for the, for the for delinquent. <laughs> So when I used to tell people that I was from Mary Industrial High School, they said, what did you do? I said, I killed a man. <laughs> so they, then they, I was known as the killer. <laughs> oh, a, but you come from a small high school way up north of Louisiana, almost on the Arkansas border. Mm -hmm. Not knowing nothing about down south Louisiana. Nothing. But the, the culture was the same, plantation life. Yeah. Living that, uh, well, we were wood, wood, wood like puffwood logs, and uh, that's what now. Uh, that's what we in farm life. That's what most people made their living. But y'all farm was not. Y'all had uh, cows and. Peas. Well, we had cotton too. My grandfather, my grandfather had made that load of cotton to the gin every year. That was payday time. He all bought us all candy. <laughs> oh, that was big time. <laughs> yeah, and we played the right load of cotton on the wagon. He pull it to the gin, and we'd be in there playing, burying each other in the cotton and all of that. We had, we had a great time. Then they dug, dug a pond up there, and we had a place to fish and swim. That's what we, I learned to swim in one Uncle Will's ponds. I wanted to go, I had three schools that I wanted to go to. My, my, my civics teacher, Miss DeJohnette, she went to Fisk. I wanted to go to Fisk. Tennessee. Tennessee, never, never been there, didn't know nothing about it, but she said it was a good school, special for blacks, and it was a, it was a, like a Harvard school. So this is where the Amistad started at. Yeah. Research so center. I wanted to go to Fisk, but my parents didn't have no Fisk money. And uh, so my second choice was to go to Notre Dame. They didn't have a Catholic school in the whole parish, black or white. So I knew nothing about Catholicism. My third school was West Point. I wanted to go to West Point. Uh, I wanted to be a, an officer. So I wrote Otto Passman, the congressman from up there, and he never returned my letter. I wrote a letter to Richard Milhouse Nixon, Vice President of the United States. Vice President Nixon wrote me back. And he said, coming from the little high school that I went to, I probably need to go to a military prep school a year before I went to West Point. But he, would give, he was committed already, but he would give me an appointment to West Point the next year if I would go to a school in New Jersey, which was a military private school. He would get me a, a scholarship, a free tuition to go there. But I didn't want to sit out a year. And why West Point? What did you know about West Point? Well, I won the civic scholarship for Louisiana of all the high schools in the state, black and white. I came in first two years in a row. Now, now what, what exactly is the civil? It was a test that Time Magazine gave. And if you were successful, you at least you had different prizes, but I got a a uh, set of encyclopedia. I was, I was a prolific reader. 
I sold the Chicago Defender out of Chicago. They mailed it to me. I sold it. I had my route. I sold Grit magazine out of Pittsburgh. I, I, my mama always subscribed to the Monroe Morning World newspaper. I read all of those newspapers, and I read uh, the local paper and the weekly paper. So reading is... I read, I read. I was, I was a prolific reader. Your mama or your daddy encouraged you to read like that, or just, you just picked that up? I picked it up. My mama, my daddy was third grade education. My mama finished at Gramlin in 1947. Grambling University? Grambling University. She and Eddie Robinson was uh, classmates. They, Eddie had gone to uh, Leland College. Right <coughs> yeah. uh, uh, in Baker. And my mom started teaching when she was 10th grade. They, they were so short of teachers back in those days. So she had to get her education on weekends and during the summer. So my mother taught school. <laughs> I said I should I should have be a mental patient. Miss Ira Warrens was my first grade teacher, my mother's friend, and she was tough. Whoo, Miss Ira was tough. I ain't gonna tell you how tough. Then I got I graduated from her class to go to second grade. It just so happened that the school changed Miss Ira from first grade to second grade. So I got her two years in a row. Then third grade, I had Miss my mama, Aura <clears throat> Lee Wayne. Who? Aura Lee Wayne, my third grade your, teacher. Your mama was your teacher. Lord have mercy. And she made everything she wanted to do is make an example. Of us, She would come in and whoop me for no reason at all. <laughs> If the kids were making noise, everybody, James did it. They would say, no, Miss Ori James was sitting down in the seat. <clears throat> My mama would whip me. I should have a complaint. <laughs> so two boys jumped on me one day, and I beat them up. Now, you, now hold on, now, hold on. Now. You beat two by yourself? By myself. All right. Then. And, they came, and we were all in the same classroom, so they came back to the classroom, eyes all swollen, pants and shirt all torn up, and I came back and sat down. And they said, what happened to y'all? James Wayne jumped on us. No, no, Mr. Story, they jumped on uh, James. I got a whipping. So then third grade, fourth grade, I got a break. My daddy's cousin, Lee McElroy, right. <clears throat> she was nice, and she, she treated me fair. All your family was, was teachers? Most of them. So you came from a family of educators? Yeah. I'll tell you who, who knew my family. Well, J.K. Haynes. Dr. J.K. Haynes. Dr. J.K. Haynes used to come up. I thought the order of important people in the world was Jesus Christ, Eisenhower, and J.K. Haynes. <laughs> they were the order of people in, that ranked in, in my world. And why J.K. Haynes? He, whenever there was trouble, Supposed to be hanging going on and all that kind of stuff. J.K. was the person who came up to quieten things down. They, they, did, they didn't call no lawyer. They called J.K. J.K., I knew him. My mother used to go to this school convention in, I believe, in November, they all, around Thanksgiving. And I used to go and when I was a young man and drive my mama and Aunt Lucille 
all of them. Now, my Aunt Georgia B. Wayne, Uncle King's wife, she taught me fifth grade. And then sixth grade, I met the meanest woman in the world, my Aunt Lucille Wayne. <laughs> Aunt Lucille Wayne, Uncle Moses' wife. <clears throat> that woman could hit hard. She used to beat me so hard with a strap with a hole in it that I just wouldn't even flinch anymore. She just going to make me cry like everybody else. I just stand there and take it. So you should, in other words, you should have been traumatized as a child. Huh? I'm telling you, I should have had a mental problem. <laughs> so when I got to be seventh grade, I had a, ma a first male teacher, Mr. Henry. And he was new and young, right out of service. And uh, went to, I guess he went to Gramlin. And uh, I couldn't, I was bad. I got out from under all my, my relatives, and I look back at when I was a bad boy. And I, you know, adolescent, you know, started getting mannish and stuff. And then I got to be ninth grade. I, I got A's in all my classes, except one. I got C's. That was music. So me and my, my best friend, Ralph Holler, we went to Miss Payne. So what do we have to do to not get C's? They're messing up my record. She said, join the choir, uh, sing a, a, a solo or duet. So I joined the choir, and I got a B. And uh, so that, that improved my records. That's, but I didn't want to sing. I wanted to be in the, take the history test, geography test, and all of that, the drama test. Uh, I was so good at drama that I wrote my, my junior play and my senior play in high school and produced it and um, practiced and rehearsed it and gave everybody their parts and everything. You do it all kind of thing. I call myself bragging I when I learned what the word mirror-minded was, a mirror-minded person. I could do a little bit of all of it. <clears throat> I was so well read. I had a big world. Like you asked me, how did I know about being an officer and what have you, I read. I mean, I, I, everything I picked my hand up, Ebony Magazine, Magazine, Jet Magazine, and one of the highlights of my life was having Bob Johnson, the president of Jet Magazine, as my guest here in Baton Rouge for the, one of the Bayou Classics, uh, Bob Johnson. That's John Johnson who had Ebony. Bob, his brother, had Jet. We're going to get to that now. And, uh, all the great things you've done. We ain't even got to that. Yeah, so <laughs> we still in that's your, a little we school. We still in you and your parents now. Then I had a, a mentor named Willis T. Sensley. And uh, his son, Butch, made a big name for himself. And of course, uh, Mr. Sensley made a name for himself. He took a liking to me when I was in high school. And he organized a parish-wide 4-H club, 4-H club organization. And when I was a junior in high school, he ha had an election to be parish president. So from that, they had a, they organized a student government. I was a student government president when I was a junior in high school, which normally was a senior position. They didn't have anything written that only seniors could run. So I asked the principal, could I run? He said, yeah, James, you can run. So when I was a junior, I ran and won. So then Mr. Sensley organized a parish-wide student government association, and he put me up to run for that, and I won that with no, no company opposition. Parish-wide. Parish-wide, and we would have meeting in Farmerville. <clears throat> so 
Willis Reed and Monroe Pitts and Don Ivory and all those boys, Bill Berry's, uh, I don't know if you know, uh, Reverend Bill Berry was up, up here. That, that just passed. Yeah, just passed. I, I was at his wake service. Yeah, Reverend Bill's Berry. Yeah. I, he, he's from that area? Yeah, he's from Bomberville. And I used to, my, one of my best friends was Barbara Bilberry, his little sister. She was in the same class as me. We was in student government together. She was in Farmerville, I was in Marriott. And her older brother, Ralph Bilberry, who's still living, I saw him at uh, Reverend Bilberry's wake. Uh, Ralph was my big brother in Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity at Southern. So I pledged Kappa because of Ralph. And uh, I did not know you was in a fraternity. That's my first time here. Yeah, Kappa Alpha Psi. You didn't miss a beat. I was, I was, I had Coach Mumford as a mentor. I had. Uh, but you didn't play sports. I played baseball. I played football. I, I won the most valuable player in the state statewide championship football game in singly. And we, we uh, beat the Quincy. We played uh, 13 games that year. Eight in the, in the district, and then the championship, Walnut Hills, Shreveport, Haynesville. 43 points were scored against us in 13 games. We were good on defense. Now, what position you play? I played linebacker on the right side. Oh, yeah, man. right side linebacker <laughs> and right, uh, right halfback. But I had the coach gave me the option on any given play, if I thought it was a passing play, I was captain, co-captain of the football team. I'd go back to halfback if I thought it was half, a pass play. If I thought it was a running play, I, I, I switched out and moved up to right linebacker. I was I a linebacker. So they had a boy in De Quincey in the championship game had scored 29 touchdowns that year. And nobody could stop him. He, just, he was big. Yeah, I, I, he he looks something like in the days world uh, Charles Bartley, okay. big, bald headed, about six three, weighed two forty something. That was huge back then. Woo! <laughs> Do I know? That was huge. I remember I jumped around his neck. He came through the line from my right linebacker spot. I jumped around his neck. He just stood up and run, running down the field with me hanging on his neck. And the only thing to save me, but I slowed him down so somebody could catch him. <laughs> but the, the key play of the game was I was playing outside linebacker. And they threw, we were barely leading. It was December 13th, 1957. And uh, they threw a screen pass to him. A little swing pass out of the backfield to my side. And I went into him. Head on, arms around him. He, his knees just hit me under the chin, knocked me down, walked in my stomach, stomped my head, and ran in for a touchdown. And I wasn't hurt, but I laid down like you I was, feel hurt. It was hurt. Oh, I said, oh, the boy's going to tease me. This big dude just made mush out of me. So I laid there for a while. Nobody come to help no, but I, I, I saw the referee coming back by me, and I kind of peeped up a little bit, and I saw his, the referee stalking. And then I looked a little bit further, and I saw the yellow flag, backfield in motion, to call the play back, call the touchdown back. Oh, okay. 
I said, help. I started calling help. I need help on this side. I can't handle them. Y'all need to help me. <laughs> Nobody moved. When the play went off, God just gave me and said, they're going to run the same play over you again. I knew I couldn't stop him. I, he was too big. I tried. I wasn't scared of him. <laughs> so I said, well, the only thing I know to do, I knew I could do, go get the ball. Get the ball before he get it. Before he get it. So when a little quarterback looked over there, I said, oh, yeah, come on, son. He threw it. And I went up, got it, and I'm going to feel it. I ran it down about the 15 before Clarence put my lights up. He caught up with me down. The and same, I was the on same, about the, the 15. Same big, the same big boy? Same big boy. The same big boy ran you down. Ran me down. <laughs> they say he ran down the field with his hands up like that. When he got to me, he smothered me. And the ball hit me in the chest, and I held onto the ball. And... Uh, Knocked my wind up. So when I came through, I was on the sideline. And about two plays later, we went in for a touchdown. And that was the margin of the game. That, we won. That, that, what was the guy's name? Clarence Walk. He went on to Southern Illinois and played a little Canadian ball. He was good. He was a big, that's a huge man. Oh, thing. man. So he was the man. biggest one on the field, period. Yeah, probably so. And had speed. And had speed. He had speed. And the only thing I knew, go intercept the ball, James Wayne, because you can't stop it. You can't it. stop it. Once you get the ball, you're in trouble. I, I had to get the ball. But, but he going to run you down, the big mm, boy ran He you. ran me down. Now, looking back, I didn't think he was behind me. I'm, you're cruising. I'm over. cruising on down the field. I wasn't even in my after gear. <laughs> Boy, my lights just went out. <laughs> who was your coaches back then? My coach was John Q. Watley from Bernice. He was my industrial art teacher, and my math teacher, and the, the football coach. We, he, he, he died about two or three years ago, and I, fortunate enough, we, we had a, a luncheon at his house before he died. The, 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 four, the, the four of us who got that scholarship, we went to his house and, and had, had, had a luncheon. That, that's a special memory to have of him. He had gone to Southern. So he he sort of pushed us to Southern too, but Southern had ROTC, Gramley didn't, and uh, couldn't go to Tech then, couldn't go to Northeast then, so all go to all all, uh, all black school back then, back in 1959. Yeah, no choice and no options at all. No, and so I went to Southern, got involved in ROTC, and got us uh, went on in in advanced ROTC, and. Uh, that's where I met James Schaefer's. He, James Schaefer's, our senior year, he was a student commander. Of ROTC. ROTC. He's the one that got the Woodrow Wilson with me. Now, what did you study at Southern? What was your field? I, I started off in pre-med. My mama wanted me to be a doctor. Pre-med? Yeah, I was going to be a doctor. And uh, everybody thought I was going to be a doctor. Now, I was, well, you were a doctor of law. Well, what happened was, if you was pre-med at Southern, you had to take the start off with the fourth course of chemistry. We had no chemistry in my high school. So here I'm at Southern, I got to start off at Southern in the fourth course of chemistry. You never had taken Never even had chemistry in high school. So... I got a midterm, I got a F. So I went home for Thanksgiving, told my mom, my mother, 
I don't know if I can be a doctor. She said, well, just try harder. I said, Mother, I tried hard. She said, well, James, just go back and really apply yourself. And if you can't make it, you can go and major in what you want. So I went back and I studied. And I did a little bit better in that chemistry test. Well, I withdrew the first time. I said, Mother, I got an F, but I worked hard for it. <laughs> I worked hard for that F. And they just give it to you. Yeah, you I earned, said, you earned it. I earned that F. She said, well, go ahead and major in what you want to major. So I, I talked to Dr. Higgins and Dr. Prestige, and I went over to the pre-law, political science. That's how I ended up going to uh, going, getting in that field. Then I went in five years. I was in the military. Okay, now, once you graduated mm -hmm. uh, from Southern, mm -hmm. you was drafted into the... No, I got an ROTC commission. That June, when I graduated from Southern, I got two diplomas. I, I got a Southern degree, and I got a commission, the United States Army, second lieutenant. So that was in June. In September, I went on active duty at Fort Benning, Georgia. What year was that? That was 1953. I graduated from Southern in 1963. And uh, went on active duty that September. I went to Germany, December. I got to Germany December 24th, 1963. You leader left the country, huh? Eh? I left the country. I got to Germany Christmas Eve. That was the loneliest Christmas I ever had in my life. Snow was up to my knees. First time being in snow, you come out of weeks, I used to snow, though, huh? Eh? Yeah, I was used to a little <laughs> snow, but not up to my knees. Okay, it was snow. What part of Germany was that? I was in a little place called, that time I was at a little place called Bumholder, and it was a bum place. So. Now, you, now you, it's Vietnam War going on. Yeah. But you were in Germany. I was in Germany. But Vietnam War was sort of, uh, it was mostly advisors. It wasn't real soldiers over there oh, okay. fighting, it was advisors. So when I got there that Monday morning, I was at the office club having breakfast. And uh, Lieutenant Mark came in and said, is the Lieutenant Wayne in here? I said, me. He says, Jim, he said, um, Wayne, I, I come to get you. You've been transferred to uh, Warren, Germany. You'll be in the first of 39th, which is why my unit, and they sent me to get you. And he came down there. I don't have no winter clothes. Got a coat. And he came to pick me up and show you how they treat us in an open Jeep with no windshield. And it's freezing cold. Not only freezing cold, sleeping. And I had to drive, ride about, about 70 miles in that cold. And I put on, I told him to stop, I opened my bag up, I put on every shirt, every coat I had on. Cause you wouldn't go make it. You would've come out there alive. Huh? Yeah. You, the war ain't even got started for you. For you. Yep, I'm in that but cold. You're freezing to death. Huh? That was December the 26th. Day after Christmas. Yeah, day after Christmas. So I got war in Germany. I, that's where I met uh, later General Casey. He was a colonel then, and I had it, had it pretty rough. They they set me up. The unit I was in, 
the company commander had an excuse. He had to go to California, him and his family. And the next person in line, he something was wrong with him. And I was the only officer left. So I'm new here, and they, 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 they knew what was coming. They had an inspection coming. And that company had failed the inspection the year before. So they all was running and left me in charge. So when I got word that they would be there in two days, I mean, I put that unit in gear. I mean, to my soldier, I made them soldier those, 20, those 48 hours. So when we got ready, went through the uh, inspection, I had a general, uh, Creighton B. Abram, and he was the head of the team that came to inspect us. We went through it, we passed. You just been there two days? Two days. You, you passed an inspection that they filled, filled before. Well, what, 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 you had to, what you had to do to, to get ready for the inspection? I kept them up all night, going over stuff till I would, till they passed me. I had good instructors at Southern. Huh. I had darn good instructors. I just did what I thought Major Pignett and Cap, uh, Major Curvin and the sergeants, Sergeant Brewer and all of them. I just did what I thought they would do. They were my leaders at Southern. They taught me. Well, I passed. They passed. And then they had an AGI. They pulled the same shit on me again. What is AGI? AGI, that's what, AGI is more, it's not physical, it's mentally, it's physical too. They'll go into your foot locker, and if your toothbrush is not late like they're supposed to be, you get gigs and whatever. AGI is a form of the, the first, right. And that was the first one, AGI. Then the second was a CMM, a command maintenance inspection. That's when they're going to check your weapons and your jeeps, your, your army personnel carrier, APC. Uh, they, they, they inspect all of that. And I took them through both of those inspections and, and passed. And that unit had failed before. So what, what, what did you get out of that from the... I was like Muhammad Ali then. I'm a bad man. <laughs> I'm a bad man. I know. I, well, I, you know what I did? I think those instructors at Southern, they're the one who got me ready. I was ready. And I, I soaked up information. I, I made A's and most A's, maybe one or two B's, but military history and stuff like that, I stepped it up. But I was, when I, we went to Fort Seals, that summer to get ready to go on active duty. To, I mean, the, 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 I was senior year in ROTC. I did well. I mean, I came out with one of the leaders. I was thinking this morning that I hit a triple in the softball game. And I would have been inside the park home run, but I failed. I had boots. I couldn't afford tennis shoes. <laughs> I was married at the time. And I fell on my face going from second to third. But I, I made a triple. But uh, that was... I, my background was, was the, the instructors. In high school, why did we get full scholarship? Nobody else, New Orleans, Lake Charles, Baton Rouge, no other school got full scholarship, you but we did. You in a rural community. Those teachers, when, when, when I went through that, what I went through in, in Germany, and I kept, I, 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 finished, I didn't finish telling you about Casey, so, when I went through the second test, they had a European platoon leader 
ship uh, competition. Every combat platoon in Europe, everywhere we were stationed, Italy, Germany, France, England, all of those countries of NATO, they put on a competition for platoon leaders, competency tests. When they sent word that I was coming up in a month's time, my platoon was coming up to be tested by the, the, the testers. They had a special, I think it was a five-day contest where they put you through the hoops, your whole platoon. Sergeant Paybon, a Puerto Rican sergeant, uh, my weapons platoon leader, and Sergeant Paybon came to me and said, uh, Lieutenant Wayne, could I talk to you? I said, yes, sir, come on. He said, sir, you know why? You have to go every Friday and Saturday night to get men out of jail. I said, no, why? He said, before you came here, I'm Puerto Rican. They didn't think much of me. Every soldier, white soldier that was troublemaker, would always get in jail having fights and drinking. They put them in your platoon before you got here. So when you got here, they gave you a second platoon Charlie Company, that's where all the, 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 the riffraff was. I said, oh, that's why I'd be up on Saturday and Friday night going to get them out of jail. I said, yes, sir. So when they said I had to do the platoon leader for Europe, I knew what I had was nothing. So I said, well, I'm going to try with them. So I asked the battalion commander, I said, Duck, Sir, could I have permission to take my platoon out for training just by myself? I don't want to be part of the company, battalion. I want to go out my own training. I don't need nobody to tell me what to do. I want to train them myself. And he looked at me and said, sure, of course. Like, it ain't going to make a damn difference. So he said, yeah. I said, no, I have one request. I said, when I have the platoon test, I see they're going to have one tank attached to me. I want you to requisition a tank to be with me. I want that tank leader and everything to go with it to be on the test with me. He said, okay, I'll get that done. So on a given day, it was the day for me to take them out. It was in the snow. I took them out. Predominant white men? Huh? Predominant white men? Mm, white, Puerto Rican, and black. So I took them out in the snow. I put them in a circle. I got up on top of APC and told them to circle around me. I said, the reason I got you all out here by yourself is I want to train you. Before I train you, I want you to, I want to ask you something. I said, all of you know why you're in this unit. You are known to be so-and-so. And the only reason I'm over here, you don't see no other blacks head of a platoon, they're all white. So, y'all ain't, I ain't supposed to be that either. So we're supposed to go out here and F up. Now, I don't like to be called that name, because I, I know I'm good, but you're not. Now, I can make you as good as I think I am, and I'm good, but you gotta commit to me that you are not that. If you follow my leadership and what I train you to do and do that on this test we got coming up, this European test, 
we'll pass it. Now, I got to make water. I'm going to get down off this tank. Got to make water. I got to go make water. You got to go pee. Pee. I said, I'm going to go out here and take me a little walk in this fine German forest. I'll be gone for half an hour. Y'all have a meeting. Y'all make up your mind you want to be soldiers. And let me make you soldiers. Are y'all going to be, you know what? And we just go out here and have a week good time when it's time to come. So I got out and went out, took my walk. I came back in half an hour. Got back up on that tank and I said, okay, what do y'all decide? And the, and the one who was, the, always had to get him out of jail, PFC Riser. I think he was on the dope or something. He stuttered. So, 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 we won't be soldiers. I said, you Riser? Yes, sir. They, go, they, they want to be soldiers. I want to be a soldier. I'm, I'm tired of them laughing at me. I said, okay. I said, y'all all agree with that? Yes, sir. I said, all right. I said, I'm going to put you through the drills. And I did. I mean, I had so many signals. They knew when, when I was on my, in the tank leader, they knew all my signs, my left turn, right turn, column. Spread out. I had all kind of. I mean, some they weren't all of them wasn't military signs. The sign I made up. I want them to be able to look at me and, and and decide what I wanted to do. And so we went through that test. Highest score ever been made on the test. The highest score. Five hundred on a European test. Yeah. That a brother had to showcase. Kick their butt. A brother from rural. <laughs> North Louisiana, trained by the staff at Southern go, University of ROTC. Go, go to Germany and, and get the we, highest score on a European test. 500 was the highest mark. And you had what they call the wusser of the wusser. The, the worst. <laughs> the worst of the worst. And when they got trained. back, they became the worst again. <laughs> but they, well, the, well, general, the general division commander was so proud that he had a, a stand-in review where we were the celebrities of the day, where everybody had to pass by us and salute us, that little unit. And after that, everybody wanted me. Generals requested me. Air Force generals wanted me to come shape up their unit. I mean, I mean, they were fighting over me then. What, what awards or honor did you get for that? Oh, I, I, was a, I was a platoon leader. We got citations and all kind of stuff. When we got to the, then a God would have it one night, I had a, I, I ended up with a top secret clearance. And I was the only black that they knew of that had a top secret clearance. And what made it so unique that I got a top secret clearance, my wife, Clyde T, she had a top secret clearance before I even was awarded one. She was in the military? No, she was from Southern University. She took a test, civil service test, and she did high in math. She was a math teacher, math major. Matthew Crawford, head of the math department, was one of her teachers. Milligan and all of the math teachers. Well, when, when she married me in 1962, I graduated in 63, she took another test, civil service test. 
and they uh, want to give her a job in St. Louis, Missouri to, to learn how to do, be a, a cartographer. Well, cartographers are people who make maps all over the world. You know, they, they got a map of every inch of the world. I'm, when I say every inch, every inch. Well, they trained her how to look at the U-2 pictures that the Air Force took over the Soviet Union or whatever. I can't go into no detail, but she was trained to. One of the projects she worked on was she had to hide things from me. I didn't have a top secret clearance then, but I understood okay. the Cuban Missile Crisis, that they had missiles up under the ground. She had been trained how to do that. So she, she had to map all that out. She had to say what was under the ground. Well, that's enough of that. And then when I went in, they asked us, some of us to apply for the, I, I got a secret clearance. I had a confidential out of Southern. Well, I got a secret clearance I applied for. Then they asked me in Germany to apply for a top secret. And they awarded me a top secret clearance. So at that time, husband and wife both had top secret clearance. Um, we were recruited by this CIA when I got out, but we didn't want to do what they wanted us to do. What did they want y'all to do? They wanted us to do some shit <laughs> as, a, as a couple. I mean, we're like, what? I mean, give us a bad idea. They wanted us to stay in Europe. Okay. Now, as far as I'll go. I came on back, of course, ended up going to law school. I wanted to be in, this, in the Louisiana State Police. They discouraged me. They didn't want me in there. I, I was I had I was more intelligent than anybody they had in there, including the, the colonel. I wanted to go in the, in, the, in the reserve. I was too much for them too, so they discouraged me from going in the reserve here. So I got their drift. So I said, I better just stick with my plans and go to law school. So that's that's what I did. And that's when you applied for the, 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 uh, fellow, well, the fellow? yeah. Well, Casey, General Casey, he left me in Germany and went on to the War College and a whole bunch of stuff. And now his name was George William Casey. That name don't mean nothing to you. But if you think about Iraq, who was the commanding four-star general in Iraq, George William Casey Jr. He was on my baseball team when I was in Germany. He had a, his, he, his dad was killed as a major general in uh, Vietnam. General Case, the one who wrote my recommendation, wrote me a recommendation to go to law school for Woodrow Wilson. Well, he, his son ended up being what he was going to be, head of the whole damn army, a four-star general, the Joint Chief of Staff. And uh, he's still living. He was over the commander in Iraq, uh, Chief of Staff. His wife, I don't know if Elaine, Miss Case, is living. She remarried again. She was the one that told me her husband was killed in, in, uh, in Vietnam after I left. We were close. He, he thought of me like a son. He had my back. When, it, when, it, when I had commanders trying to run over me and mess over me, Case would straighten that out quick. I was in South Vietnam. I got a call on my radio one day from Saigon. I was way, I was way down in the Mekong Delta. 
came over my radio that I was Matt's 18. And he said, uh, Matt's 18? So the radio operator got me and said, Sir, somebody from Saigon trying to reach you. It was the same commander who came to see me in Germany, who was a major general at the time, General Abram. He said, Jim, I hear you're doing great things down there. I said, well, I'm doing my best, sir, just like you trained me. He said, one of the days I want to come see you. He was, Westmoreland was the head man. He was the number two man in, in Vietnam, I mean, in uh, Saigon. So I got a call on my radio that I had some Victor India Papas coming. That's VIP. I saw oh, some damn movie stars coming. They, they would drop in on, they would send them to me all the time. Even when I was, was commanding unit up in northern Vietnam, uh, not North Vietnam, but northern part of South Vietnam, they would always want to send them to my unit. William Tallman, who used to be the the, the DA on uh, Perry Mason, okay. he came to see me. Uh, different movie stars came over and they would send them to my unit. One day, I had a boy in my unit named Joe Curran. And he stayed over there. He, every time he would re-up, found out his father was a millionaire, very wealthy. Casey had looked after me. I got into some problems. Not, I did nothing wrong, but I had a lot of enemies. People who was senior to me, but didn't like all the attention I got from higher up, their seniors. Because nobody else knew four-star general like I did. So he came down to South Vietnam to Chula, not Chula, Cao uh, Ki. And I saw the, not one helicopter, six helicopters flying in. What the hell going on? So we prepared a landing pad, surrounded it, and here comes four-star general Creighton B. Abram. Jim, I heard about the good thing. He said, long way from Germany. I said, yes, sir. And we talked. He said, show me what you got. So I showed him stuff I had laid out. He said, now, what do you get your, how do you make your firing ring? He said, that's great. I said, well, sir, y'all send me ammo. Send I was not with an American unit then. I was with a Vietnamese unit, just like we have National Guard here. They had a, what they call a PF, Popular Forces, same as concept. So I lived with them, training their leaders how to be leaders. Leaders, Vietnamese. He got off the helicopter. I mean, I almost doo-dooed. Because I wasn't expecting no four-star general coming down to see me. And then it was him, somebody who knew me, and I knew him back in Germany. We started talking. I went out and showed him the firing range. He said, how you make this your firing range? I said, sir, y'all send me ammo? I tell the boys, don't throw the ammo boxes, burn them up. Take them, take your hammers, and take the nails out of them, and then take the lids that flop down on top of the ammo and make hinges, those hinges on it, make something that'll fall down when the bullet hit it. And then I had wire, concertina wire, which we had plenty of it, reams and reams of it. I take that and put it on a string back to the beginning of the firing range, so when we shoot it, it goes down, flop down, and I could, we could pull it back up. I had manual labor, Vietnamese pull it back up. I didn't have to have a man down range send the targets back up. He said, ingenious. And he said, uh, why are all these women out here? I said, sir, 
we don't have that many men down here, Vietnamese in the, in the regional forces and the popular forces. So mostly when we lose a position out in the boondocks, the, 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 Viet, the Vietnamese soldiers, they run off and leave everything because they're overpowered. So they have more women because the men all kill or in service. I talk to women how to shoot so they could shoot too. They, they just as, can be trained just as accurate. So you, so, had, you had a women platoon? Well, I had them integrated with the service. See, down there, the men slept in little mud huts out in the boondock. A man, a woman, and maybe two or three men. They stayed there. You know, they stayed at that outpost. So when the 10 Viet Cong come, they ran. And lift the weapon, everything. So I figured out a way to have more firepower if the women could shoot too. So those women, the men, women stayed in the same hut. So everybody's well knew how to shoot. Everybody knew how to shoot and shoot straight. Another thing I did, I showed General Avery, we had artillery support, but the men down there didn't trust our artillery because it was a Viet, North Vietnamese lieutenant who had been trained in the, like West Point of North Vietnam and he defected and came over to the South Vietnamese and he was signed down my unit over that artillery. So they didn't trust him. So they wouldn't use him. They didn't know how to calculate the, the coordinates where to call in the, the, fire, the, the, the fire power from the artillery. It was too complicated for them. So they wouldn't use it. All that foul, foul, foul. we had a, a whole battalion of, of artillery, and they scared, scared or didn't know how, or both, to use it. So I said, by the time a force of Viet Cong build up, confronted them out in the outpost, and they see it, and they got to call it in, and they got to call it in to a higher up, then they got to call it in down to the battalion, and then they got to call it. By that time, they overrun. I said, it's not practical. So what I did, I taught them how to call the airstrike in from that little hut. I plotted position all around that hut. That's a Ford over there. That's a Chevrolet right there. That's a Dodge there. That's a Studebaker there. So I had the trails all around that, that outpost plotted with a name. So I could walk artillery all around. Give me, give me, give me a barrage of, of Chevrolets. All right. Okay, walk around so many coordinates to the left and give me a Dodge. That was all the trails. I hit all the spots where normally they would come in and invade us. So I ran tests. So anytime I thought the Viet Cong was going to try to overrun one of my outposts, I, called, I told them, I said, call in, a, call in a forward, call in a forward. And they said, forward, forward, forward. And that artillery was like, boom, boom, boom. And I said, I'm walking to the left, walking to the left. And they said, boom, 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 boom. So when the Viet Cong realized that we were that fast, because it usually take hours before you could get artillery on site. And I could get it in minutes. They, I had not one outpost overrun. Sometimes I just to mess with their mind. I was just, let's, okay, let's do a little fire drill. And I had a code as to when it was for real or when it was just 
No, for real. So some nights, clear night, I said, this is a good night for, for them to try to overrun us. Before they time to overrun us, I'd do a fire drill. You, you start fire first, huh? Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. I said, walk it all the way around, walk it all the way around. Then the ceasefire. Well, the Viet Cong never knew when to try to come because I was, I would, I'll tell them to walk it all the way on, uh, to get on top of you. When General Crave, he said, now that's ingenious. So he said, before he got ready to do it, he said, now Jim, you've told me everything you're doing, I'm impressed. I got to send you around to some other units. And he said, um, what is it that you don't have, Jim, that well, you can't get enough of bullets, uh, artillery? No, I said, no, sir, we got everything we need. The only thing we don't have enough of is Constantino wire. That's my close uh, defense, Constantino wire around the outpost. I'd like to have more than that. So this, this general who was over, the major general, American general who was on his traveling with him, so if we can get you Constantino wire. I said, yes, sir, you can get it. You got plenty of it, but I haven't rated these units. Uh, Vietnamese units don't rate a high priority. That goes to the big red one and all the big units. He said, you can get it if you request it. I said, sir, I've requested several times. And he stopped chewing me out. So General, General uh, Abrams said, Jim, come walk with me. So we walked out to the fence and he said, I just want to get that little two-star general out of your hair. Talk to me, son. Tell me what you need. <laughs> oh, I was so the, proud. The little two-star general. Yeah, right? yeah, he said, little two-star general <laughs> out of your he hair. You're a four-star general. Yeah, four-star general. He's the number two man under Westmoreland. And later became the whole head man when they pulled West, Lyndon Johnson pulled Westmoreland home. Westmoreland didn't know his ass from a hole in the ground. I, I went through a lot. But, but you, you didn't want to make a career after military. They begged me. I mean, General Craig Abrams sent a full colonel and two majors down to spend a day with me. They brought, brought me up to Mila, not Mila, Mito. What is, what is Mito? That was a, a, a big, bigger town than what I was stationed at. I was down in Kaki. They got me drunk. I had never had steak and lobster. He said, our job and mission is to get you to commit to stay in. I said, sir, I'm going to drink your liquor. I'm going to eat this fine food y'all got for me. But I'm getting the hell out. I said, Jim, you're making our mission impossible. Abram said he wants you to make a career. He wants you to go all the way. See, the only person who was ahead of me, that had my political game and ability ahead of me was Colin Powell. And uh, I got out way before Colin Powell went up. Casey was killed in Vietnam on July 7, 1970. The four-star general? He, he was killed as a major general. Casey was my, the man who was in, in Germany when I went oh, there. Okay, okay, okay. And Abrams was the, Abram, over Vietnam, ended up being the commander over all of Vietnam. So you, you served four years in Vietnam? Uh, no, I was only served a year. Actually, uh, uh, General Abrams asked me, if said, Jim, anything I can do for you? I said, yes, sir, you can get me home. So you, always, you, always did, you, made, you did all this in one year? Mm-hmm. And like Ali said, I was a bad man. <laughs> he was a bad boy, huh? 
In well, one year, you change, you turn that whole thing around. Mm-hmm. Well, then, when when I left in '68, they debriefed me, and I told them we need to get out, and they put. They put General Abrams in charge. When, when Westmoreland left, Abrams stepped up and became the commander. And so Abrams believed in me so that he had me to come to Saigon again to, to go over there. What I thought, how we should fight the war. I said, get the hell out. Can't win. So we, we, we couldn't get out fast enough. Why do you say you couldn't win? The only way we could win is to go all out and go to North Vietnam. And the politics of the world was that we could go to, only to the, to the North to South line. We couldn't go in North Vietnam, not legally, we did sometimes. But worldwide, we wasn't supposed to go to North Vietnam. So, so you're not even fighting them on their territory. You, you're fighting them from another country. Yeah, but they had two Vietnam, North Vietnam, South Vietnam. Right. Just like two Korea, North Korea, North, South okay, Korea. Right. And they, they divided that up and still divided. it. But the, the, the North Vietnamese, one, kicked us out. See, we never would invade North Vietnam, not full force. And they infiltrated South Vietnam to the point that... Uh, what, 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 was the, what was the Vietnam War about? What they called under Alan Douglas, the Secretary of State, back during the Kennedy McMahon years, they had a theory of the domino effects. If one Southeast Asia country go, they all would fall like dominoes. North Korea, North Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand. So the theory was that you had to keep them all in tight and check. But the political game, not just American politics that don't go north, is the world politics. France, you know, France was in Vietnam way before we ever thought about going. They spoke two languages, French and, and, and uh, Vietnamese. So the countries were divided. Had we been authorized to bring, bring all our force, we took two of Vietnam. We'd own it by now. Well, it wouldn't have taken us long. But what was the benefit of owning Vietnam? For rice. The, 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 oh, just for the rice? You're talking about rice. You're talking about rice. Uh. I so like, okay, think about a sugarcane field and sugarcane South Louisiana. Okay. There's a lot of sugarcane South Louisiana. A lot of rice in South Vietnam, South Korea. And we went on war. War is politics too. And it's economics. When we beat Vietnam, let's, let's go back. World War II, we fought Germany, we fought Japan. We beat both companies, countries. We beat Germany to submission, we beat Japan to submission. 
What is the number one luxury car in America? Mercedes. German car, right? German car. We it, beat them. The number two one is. What is the number one car in uh, Japan? Lexus. Lexus. Toyota. Toyota. Nissan. You think they Japan own all of that? You think Germans own all the Mercedes? Diamond, Diamond, uh, what's that? Diamond, oh, I forget the name of the parent company of, of uh, Mercedes. You don't think we got no stock in that? You don't think the gentleman bought stock? You don't think Wall Street bought stock in German automobiles back in, after when World War II was over? You ever seen a poor Eisenhower? You ever seen a poor MacArthur? Well, yeah. I, open your eyes. Those are the number one automobile companies. Germany and, and Japan. Japan and what, what about our technology from? What kind of radios? You ever heard of Sony? Open your eyes. People need to see what's really going on. That's all economics. It's all business. It's all business. American dollar. All business. Everything is business. Everybody about corporations, huh? Big corporation. That people, but people are dying. We're just peons in this whole big system. For, the, for those who want to get richer. MacArthur didn't have to suffer. His wife was with him every day. He was in, in the war. Philippines, Mrs. MacArthur lived with him. But he's the general. Eisenhower, uh, Mamie could have been with him, but he had uh, Miss Hensley, his Jeep driver. How you doing oh, it's, all, oh, it's all in the, it's hinted in the press. <laughs> Remember I told y'all was a prolific reason? Oh, Rita, okay. That, that, that warrior spirit. Hmm? That warrior spirit. Yeah, it was just in me. It, it was just in me. Uh, I had my problems in the Army because of that. I had a, White boy, I, I captured him. He was big stuff too. He was my senior. He was the first lieutenant. I was just still a second lieutenant. And uh, we had a problem. When that problem I told you, the first problem went on, uh, and and we my platoon one. He was playing as as an aggressor. They had on red things, hats and red stuff. So they were out to try to capture me, and I was out trying to capture them. So when I ran through this last part of the problem, we went to a little village. And when we got to the edge of that village, I told my unit to hold up. And I got out of my vehicle, went to the edge of the village, and there was, as soon as you leave the last building in the village, there was a bottom, a little creek down at the bottom. And it was about a mile to the next tree line. And I just said to myself, if I was going to trap me, this would be a good ambush spot to catch me out in the open and wipe my whole platoon out. So I told my sergeants and my platoon leaders, my squad leaders, what y'all think? Each one of them says, sir, I think you got it right. So I said, now what my plan is, I'm going to drive the APCs in the tank right up to the edge of the village 
so the guns be peeping around the building so they can see the guns from where they are. We're going to dismount, go back to the back side of the town, go around in that tree line to the left, come all the way around, and hit them from the back. I said, it's a good little hike, but we're going to run. So everybody said, okay. So I had everything, had the guns peeping out, like I'm finna shoot across the, to the other hill where the, I figured the enemy was. And I sat there with my binoculars, and I thought I saw some movement in that line. I told Sergeant, Sergeant Martin and Sergeant Butler, I said, I think that's where they are. So we went around, came around, and I gave the signals. And I said, I'm not gonna tell you to move the tanks. I'm just gonna do three swalks on the radios. Quack, quack, quack. And when y'all hear that, come running. That means I'm in position behind them, and y'all take off. We're gonna put them in a trap. Everything worked clockwork. When I sprung up behind the enemy, my, my unit that was in the, in the vehicles, the tanks, and the APC, they came down the valley shooting. I got a hundred percent wipeout. Hundred percent. Hundred percent wipeout annihilation. So, General Ewell was at the at the end. He was the deputy com division commander. He said, Lieutenant Wayne. We watched several units come through here during that test. You're the only one got off your ass and came around. I said, sir, according to the strip, I'm supposed to be hit with a nuclear attack. I got to cover up and get my men out of this area. I'll see you back at home. And took off the, he was the one who asked for the parade, the, the passing review for me after I got back. I was the only one that did that. They said, out of all of the units that had to go through that test, I was the only one that dismounted and went around him and caught him from behind. So he was a great strategist. Yep. And, and if nobody taught me how to do that. It's just, to me, common sense. <laughs> what, but that's the way it is for, in our community. A lot of things yeah. are just common sense. For yeah, us. common sense. And, and how to wipe them out. Yes. Man can shackle the hand. Man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time Podcast.